With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. From Life in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at Home. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help your challenging child and implement the collaborative problem solving approach at home. If you have a question or comment, call 347-994-2981. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about your challenging child and what we can do to help you make things better. Well, hello there, and welcome to today's program. Uh, The last program of this school year, Uh, yes, Uh, I do take the summer off from the program. I'm away, often overseas, and doing a lot of advanced trainings during the summer, and so the schedule would have been extraordinarily choppy anyhow. Um, So, our last program of this school year, but um, don't worry. Come September, I'll be back. The parents' panel will be back. Um, All of the support and help that you've become accustomed to getting on a weekly basis. We'll be back again um, first week in September. Um, in the meantime, we got 45 minutes. Your 45 minutes. Uh, as you probably well know, Lives in the Balance is committed to making sure you get the information you need about challenging kids, the information you need about how to help them, the support you need in doing it, and the advocacy you need so that we can make sure that, oh, someday soon, out there, challenging kids are very well understood, very well treated, and have much better chances for improved outcomes. Now, this is, uh, I do have some email that I've received over the past week that um, I will definitely be turning my attention to today, but um, if you do want to call in, that number is 347-994-2981. Uh, got a comment? Do call. Got a question? Do call. Just want to listen to what's going on with other people who are using the collaborative problem-solving approach. approach. No need to call, but obviously, feel free to listen. Uh, got a question um, and are not the calling in type, uh, just use the contact form on the Lives in the Balance website to send me your question. And um, that's www.lives, with a V, in the balance, dot org. 
So, you know, some parents look to the summer with great trepidation because their behaviorally challenging child is going to be around more. Um, Some parents look toward the summer with great anticipation because their behaviorally challenging child is going to be around less. What are you thinking about as you approach the summer? Summer can be a time where people are a little bit less busy, some people, um, and where there are more opportunities to practice Plan B without the pressures of school. Boy, I'm out of, i got to tell you, so many challenging kids that I work with and come across, they're just completely different kids during the summer with the pressures um, and time demands of school having been removed. Um, you know, it's, sometimes it's during the summer when you find out just how big an unsolved problem school was all along. Good to know. So many challenging kids are just completely, well, easier during the summer with that massive unsolved problem of school and homework removed. And that's the nice thing about summer. One of the biggest unsolved problems in many families, homework, is often gone. Now, not always completely gone. Some kids are given stuff that they have to do over the summer. Summer reading can be torturous. Um, Some kids have to go to summer school because they didn't do so well during the rest of the year, and now we've extended the unsolved problem uh, over the duration of the year um, to the great dismay of parents and kids with behavioral challenges. So I'm just saying this in general. Summer can be a time with a major unsolved problem removed. Once again, I recognize that's not true for everybody, but with a major unsolved problem removed, summer can be a time to get to work on some other unsolved problems, and summer can be a time, not for everybody, where there's more time to actually plan for Plan B and do it proactively. Once again, the call-in number, 347-994-2981. What are you thinking about as summer is approaching? Let me turn to some email. This is one that I've received very recently. Um, Dr. Green, my son, and I'm leaving out some of the identifying information. Dr. Green, my son goes to a self-contained school that uses applied behavior analysis almost exclusively. It is no longer working and his progress has plateaued. They are not willing to think outside the box. Um, What is the best way to teach Plan B without their help in a manner that my son will generalize across the board in different environments? (sighs) That is a tall order, but first of all, I should say I'm sorry Uh, Not that your school is using applied behavior analysis. I'm a little sorry, well, maybe a lot sorry that they're using it almost exclusively, but I will say what applied behavior analysis means so many different things to so many different people. Um, 
I was in a elementary school late last week. I wouldn't be able to tell you the day, but I met the a few of the behavior analysts in the building, and they were describing what they were doing. Um, this was in anticipation of a child who I work with going to this school next year, and um, they weren't rigidly operant in their approach to much of anything. Um, they were applying a wide range of interventions. Um, many behavior analysts that I've talked to feel that collaborative problem solving fits under the ABA umbrella, and that's fine. Um, so the part of this email that concerns me the most is if they are using applied behavioral analysis almost exclusively. Once again, though, I'm not exactly sure what they're including under that umbrella. The, the part that concerns me the most, though, is that it's no longer working and that the boy's progress has plateaued. And according to this emailer, his mom, I think, they're not, well, she's saying it's her son, so it's clearly his mom, they're not willing to think outside the box. Now comes the hard part because uh, I understand where mom's going here. I, I get this completely, but... Um, Mom, it sounds like you want to go it alone now, and you can go it alone. Um, you can do lots of proactive Plan B at home. Will it generalize across the board in different environments? Well, you know, if you and your son are busy solving problems collaboratively, then I have great faith that you and your son will come up with solutions to problems that uh, you both were able to put your concerns on the table about. The big question is, can you solve a problem collaboratively over the fact that the folks at school may not be solving problems collaboratively at all? Is that realistic? Because then... The folks at school have been left out of the problem-solving loop completely, and um, we're trying to use your son as the agent of change in an environment that may not be being collaborative at all. And I don't want to be the pessimist here, but that's low odds. So I guess I might try to paraphrase the question, and that might be, I wonder if there's a way to help the folks at school think outside the box, or at the very least, think that collaborative problem solving is inside the box. Like I said, there are many ABA people who think that collaborative problem solving fits very nicely within um, the ABA, under the ABA umbrella. And once again, I'm okay with them thinking that. I wonder if there's a way to help them appreciate the fact as well that your son has plateaued. I wonder if there's consensus on that. That's perhaps the best place to start the conversation if you haven't already he's plateaued 
whether there would be consensus on the belief that it's no longer working would probably have a great deal to do with our definition of working. Had this conversation recently in a school about what we mean by working. Working for me means the problem is durably solved and the likelihood of challenging behavior on that unsolved problem has been durably reduced or eliminated. That's working. I'm less enthusiastic about the definition of working that says, well, we've reduced the likelihood of challenging behavior for now, but if we take away our reward and punishment program, we believe that the child will return to baseline, not not the ideal definition of working. We need to feel like progress is as reliable as possible, that solutions are as durable as possible. You know, when you're doing collaborative problem solving, there's no question. Sometimes solutions work now and don't work later. But if we already know up front that the minute we remove a, a reward and punishment program, a child is going to return to baseline, I don't know if that's the definition of working we want to run with. So the big question is, is there a way to talk with the folks at school about this? I'm not... With with that definition of working being the one that we are working from, obviously this is a uh, one, two, three, four-sentence email, so that are, there are many, many details lacking. I just don't know if it's... And I understand, Mom, your frustration... I just don't know if it's going to be possible for what you're doing outside of school to generalize at school with the folks at school not participating at all. Um, We need their input. We need them to collaborate with us. So while I totally get the frustration, and, and while I think you can make a great deal of progress doing Plan B at home on unsolved problems that affect you and your son, I don't know how optimistic I'd be about making headway on the unsolved problems that are primarily located at school. I always say we're going to have to work with these people, and I don't have enough information to tell me why it's not working, and let there be no doubt. Uh, There are times when it looks like what the folks at school want to do and uh, is completely at odds with collaborative problem solving. Um, We've probably got to work with these people. Um, Feel free to email back if my response to your email didn't take you far enough. Um, I think that's probably the best I can do on the information that I have. Here's another email. Um, While gathering information, even though she knows the answer to what's up, my daughter will often answer, I don't know. I don't know how to continue drilling after such an answer. Well, I'm about to post a new hot topic on drilling for information, but I'm going to answer it now anyways. Um, I don't know is one of the things that are pretty common for kids to say um, when we ask the question, what's up? 
Um, why I don't know is common. Uh, not talking is common. Leaving the room is common. I don't have a problem with that is common. I don't want to talk about it right now is common. And a child getting defensive and saying something like, um, you're not my boss, I don't have to talk to you is common. So for those of you listening right now, um, I wish the beginning part of the empathy step, you know, saying I've noticed that and then inserting a highly specific unsolved problem and then saying what's up, I wish that alone got the job done. Sometimes it does, and so one of the possible options is um, that the child does say something, but in this case we have a child who's saying, I don't know. Now, the, now, now the I don't know that I would assume that she knows the answer. I think that that assumption, even if you're positive about that, that assumption could make it harder for you to drill for information. Don't know if we want to assume that she knows the answer. Even if she does know the answer, I don't know could mean that she doesn't have the words to tell us one of the things I often say under those conditions is, do, do you know what you want to say, but you're not sure how to say it? Or are, are you not exactly sure what you want to say? Her answer to that question will tell us, number one, well, it'll give us the information we're looking for about whether she really knows the answer. Um if she says, I don't know what I want to say, then I'm not sure she knows the answer. If she's saying, I know what I want to say, but I'm not sure how to say it, well, now that's, that's additional information, in which case you're right that she knows what she wants to say, but there's another impediment getting in the way of her saying it. She's not sure of the words. Now, how would I help her out there? Um, well, on the on the, uh, I'm not sure what I want to say. I'd say the first thing I'd say is take your time. But well, first and foremost, I'd want to make sure that we are doing this proactively. Can't tell you how many I don't knows people get because they're doing emergency plan B instead of proactive plan B. Emergency plan B is much hotter and much more rushed than proactive plan B, and then. Um, you're often going to get I don't knows. I, I, you know, if you caught me at a hot moment or at a moment where I was feeling rushed and asked me asked me a question about um, I don't know what was the Red Sox score last night. Catch me in a hot moment. Uh, I'm unlikely to to know the answer if I'm hot or if I'm rushed. Ask me in a calm moment. I would tell you the score was. I would tell you the score was seven to three, and. Look at how I really had to think about that. Seven to three. But catch me when I'm hot or rushed, I would not be able to come up with seven to three. I actually had to think about it just to come up with it. Not something that's necessarily at the forefront of my mind, the very vast majority of my waking moments. Not only do we want to be proactive before we uh, start the empathy step, we may also, in the case of I don't knowers, but also in the case of lots of other kids, want to um, make an appointment to have this conversation and maybe even 
give your daughter, not maybe, definitely, advance warning about what it is that we want to talk with her about. That means that she might, not all kids will, but she might give some thought to what you're going to be talking about before you even talking about it. And then she's not doing all of her thinking on the topic the minute you raise it. So this is interesting. Sometimes you can do proactive plan B, but if you're still surprising the child with the topic or the timing, um, you're still actually putting them in a position where they actually have to think about the whole thing right at the minute that you're bringing it up. So proactive, yes. I'd make an appointment, yes. Give her the topic ahead of time, yes. Now let's see if those ingredients get rid of some I don't knows. Let's say I've done all that, and I still get an I don't know. And once again, I'm lacking a lot of detail here. I actually invited this mom to call into the program, but um, it didn't work with her schedule, so I'm going off the one sentence of information that I have. Um, let's say you get through all of what I just described and you still get I don't know. Um, I'd say take your time. Well, let's think about this a minute. Let's. And one of the things I sometimes will do is I'll say, try to imagine yourself in that problem and tell me what's going on. But now some of so so your main so that's one strategy. Another strategy is to think, what could I don't know mean? Could I don't know mean? We really weren't doing Plan B. There, there, there was a sprinkling of Plan A in here. Could I don't know mean? And I'm just winging it here. I don't have enough information to really know. Could I don't know mean? Um, this is a child who's got a fairly extensive history of plan A and isn't recognizing that we're on a different playing field here. So she's responding to plan B in the same manner that she has previously responded to plan A by ending the conversation, quite frankly. What if she says, I know what I want to say, but I don't have the words? Uh... I'd ask her if she could give me one or two words. I'd tell her she doesn't have to put it into a complete sentence. I wonder if there's a way to make putting it into words easier for her. Yes, that was my cell phone going off. I forgot to turn it off. Now I'll turn it off. How can we make the child telling us easier? Now, lots of ways to do that, depending on how much difficulty the child is having in telling us. Sometimes we might have to use pictures for children who are very impaired in their use of words to communicate with us. Sometimes we're just drilling in the way that we ordinarily would by asking questions beginning with the words who, what, where, and or when. 
I'm not the, the problem is I don't know what the unsolved problem is, so I don't know um I'm not sure what examples to give at the moment, but let's pick one. Uh, daughter, I've noticed that um, we've been struggling quite a bit about science homework lately. What's up? I don't know. You're not sure? No, I'm not sure. Um, would it help if we thought a little bit about when, on what assignments, the science homework is especially hard? Because I'm not sure if it's all homework assignments or some homework assignments. Do you, now I'm only asking, by the way, out of, I'm not, not uh, pretending I'm in the dialogue anymore. Now I'm only asking for one word, all or some. I've just greatly reduced the linguistic demands being placed on the child by just narrowing it down to all or some. I'm just not so sure she knows the answer. I'm going to be patient with her. Of course, as a last resort, if you think you know the answer, you should feel free to do some educated guessing or hypothesis testing. I wouldn't say I know you know. That that could well have the reverse effect and cause the child not to talk at all. Because if we're wrong about that, now we've added another layer to the things that she has to think about when she may already be having difficulty thinking about the unsolved problem that we've raised in the first place. What else could I don't know mean? Um, and how else could we make it easier for the child to do what we want her to be doing right now? Thinking. that This is why I know that she knows could be a major impediment because this is, this is what's fascinating. The, the take that we have on why a child is behaving the way they are or looking the way they are or saying what they are is so crucial as it relates to how we respond. Working with a family recently, uh, the child uh, who is challenging, having trouble getting started on a major project that's due at school the mother's take, um, see, this is evidence that she's a poor planner and we need to deprive her of privileges until she becomes a better planner. The collaborative problem-solving take, if she could plan, she would plan. I actually know that this child is involved in a fairly ridiculous number of outside activities. This is the classic over-programmed child. According to the child, she's absolutely exhausted on the weekends in particular. It's a kid who works extremely hard in school, gets really good grades, always gets it done, but is often 
especially on weekends when some of the work is supposed to be being done, too exhausted to actually sit down and get it done. And mind you, remember, very good grades, very hard worker, very exhausted. Now, those are two completely different takes on the same unsolved problem. A project is due at school and the child is having difficulty getting going on it over the weekend when she's supposed to. Because the solution to poor planning would look one way. The solution to exhausted would look completely different. Thinking that the child knows the answer when we ask what's up could lead us to respond in ways that made it even less likely that we'd get the information we were looking for. I'm not sure she knows. I know that we have to figure out what I don't know means. I don't know once again could mean I think you're about to lower the boom. I'd rather not know than say something that's going to cause you to lower the boom. I don't trust yet that there's no boom lurking here. Our goal is to figure out what I don't know means. No assumptions attached about whether the child knows or doesn't know. We're going to inquire and see if we can figure it out. Let's turn our attention to another email. Uh, this one I have to read through just a little bit. Um, this is an email about um, a parent who is using punishment as the primary approach to parenting for kids. And here are the questions. How do I convince people that the issue is a child's lagging skills and not a child taking advantage? And this emailer clearly knows about the collaborative problem-solving approach already because they are asking, is the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems convincing? Yeah, that's real convincing, but not if it's used... For those of you who aren't familiar with the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, I call it the ALSIP, and you can download it from the paperwork section of the Lives in the Balance website. But the ALSIP, if it's used as a checklist, tends not to be very convincing, especially for the hard to convince. The ALSIP is convincing if people are engaged in a discussion about lagging skills and unsolved problems because a discussion, and it should be a meaningful, not perfunctory one, a discussion is persuasive. Actually having people think about specific lagging skills and the degree to which they apply to a particular child, actually having people think about the unsolved problems that are byproducts of those lagging skills, that's persuasive answering their questions as they are wondering about that lagging skill 
so that you're clarifying things, something that treating the ALSIP as a checklist does not afford us the opportunity to do. Very convincing. The question is, what if that's still not convincing? Oh, and by the way, if you're a parent and you don't have a clinician who's walking through the ALSIP with you, then doing this with your spouse or co-parent or grandparent, not just handing them the information and saying, um, look, here's the skills old Billy's lacking. Um, I know this to be true, but just remember, they haven't thought about it yet. So they're still thinking what they were thinking. And now they're thinking of something about you, about how you're making excuses for the kid, about why can't you see what's really going on in front of you? Convincing means engaging people in actually thinking about lagging skills. And convincing comes when we say to people, um, you know, Billy's not challenging all the time. Billy's challenging some of the time. We've got to figure out when he's challenging. Can you help me with that? Because those must be the times when we are asking Billy to respond to demands for skills that he's clearly lacking. By the way, it's also instructive to think about all of the times that Billy is responding and not having a problem. Proof that the child isn't challenging every second of every waking hour, isn't taking advantage every second of every waking hour, wouldn't a kid who's taking advantage take advantage most of the time? But challenging kids aren't challenging most of the time. They're challenging some of the time. If we are engaging people in discussions about a child's lagging skills, and if we're pinpointing the specific unsolved problems that are reliably and predictably setting in motion their challenging episodes... I don't think the child's taking advantage. I think he's lacking skills. And those lagging skills are biting us all in the circumstances in which they're being demanded. And we can identify those situations. Now you know they're called unsolved problems. We can identify those situations. We know what's coming. Whenever I do an evening talk, an evening talk, usually it's more parents in attendance, although to their credit, often many educators in attendance, I'll often ask parents to raise their hand and I'll say, tell me the unsolved problems that you're going home to tonight. And uh, people will raise their hands and I'll hear about teeth brushing, highly predictable unsolved problem. Other aspects of hygiene, highly predictable unsolved problem. Homework, the mother of all highly predictable unsolved problems. Uh, extracting the child's brain from the screen so that he can start getting ready for bed or start on homework or start moving in the direction of taking a bath or a shower. Highly predictable unsolved problem. I, I ask parents to tell me about unsolved problems that they'll be facing in the morning. Uh, waking up, many people raise their hands. Getting ready for school, many people raise their hands. What the child's going to eat for breakfast, many people raise their hands. Taking advantage or highly predictable unsolved problem 
flowing from lagging skills and demands for those skills. The, the key point here is that if we don't engage people in meaningful discussions about these things, then they, if we only hand them the information, then they've done no thinking, and there's been no persuading. They're still thinking what they're thinking. Another question. What if you're doing plan B? What what if you have, among four children, one child who is challenging and the others who are not? How should the parents explain to the children who are not challenging why one sibling, usually the one who is challenging, is being treated differently? And the parent is saying, I imagine that in an ideal world you would use collaborative problem-solving with all your kids, but are there situations in which you would not do this? You know, yeah, I think it's a great idea to um, do plan B with everybody. Um, But I also understand that there's some kids who need plan B worse than others, and the way I would say that is that you can get away with plan A with some kids and not others, and usually it's the challenging kid who you can't get away with plan A with. So that's the kid who we most badly need to be doing plan B with. Sorry, I was just checking to see if we have any callers. We have only eight minutes left in the program today, so if we had callers, I was going to take one. But, um, you know, in every family and I say this in every classroom as well, fair does not mean equal. In every family, in every classroom, some kids are getting stuff that other kids aren't getting. Some kids are being treated in ways that are different from the way other kids are being treated, and that's called diversity. And that's called not every square peg is going to fit into the round hole. In fact, We've got a family full and a classroom full of square pegs. Ideally, we have no round holes. Everybody's working on something. Every kid, challenging or otherwise, has problems that need to be solved. And if they are having difficulty solving those problems, then they're going to need our help with them. How do we know a child is having difficulty solving a problem on his own? It's still a problem. It's not a problem anymore, and the child didn't need our intervention. We'd know that. But the truth is, often we don't even know about it. Those are the ones that the kid handled. And even challenging kids, even though it often doesn't seem this way, even challenging kids solve problems on their own. Which ones are they having trouble solving on their own? The ones they're still getting upset about. I actually have an easier time persuading kids about fair does not mean equal, about the fact that this is not a tit-for-tat classroom or family, but that in our family we make sure that everybody gets what they need. Not going to be successful, even in a family of well-behaved kids. I suppose you could get away with this in a family of 
exclusively well-behaved kids. Although if you've got four, you've got a decent chance of having at least one of them being challenging. Those are the percentages. But I suppose you could get away with treating everybody exactly the same in a family filled with not-so-challenging kids, but that's not this emailer's fate. Now, the, the bad news is life's going to be harder. The good news, and I know that this is often a stretch in the good news department, the good news is you know that. And maybe you also know that as it as would be the case if your child had a medical diagnosis, we're going to have to learn as much about what's going on with your challenging kid as we possibly can. And boy, can it be confusing out there. So many people are saying so many different things about who challenging kids are and why they're challenging and what people ought to be doing about it. It can be confusing, but... If you're tuned in to this program, yeah, you're getting a certain perspective. Challenging kids are lacking crucial cognitive skills and have unsolved problems. They are not manipulative, attention-seeking, coercive, unmotivated, limit-testing. Their parents are not passive, permissive, inconsistent, non-contingent disciplinarians. If you're tuning into this program, then maybe you know already there are three ways to try to solve problems. Plan A is unilaterally. Plan B, collaboratively. Plan C is where you're prioritizing and tabling certain unsolved problems because you can't work on everything at once. In many respects, this is a rather simple model. Wouldn't it be great if the model was easy to it's not. It's hard, especially in the beginning, as people are first getting used to it. It's really hard. And there are some kids who, whose difficulties are really complicated and whose behaviors are more extreme, and that's even harder. And the basics of the model sometimes have to be tailored to those kids uh, in ways that me simply describing the basics doesn't necessarily get done. So I don't want to make this sound easy, but I'll tell you the definition of hard and slow. Uh, not understanding why challenging kids are challenging and not trying to solve problems collaboratively. We can explain all that to siblings we can explain to siblings why we're doing things differently for everybody in the family and how that benefits them as well. And we can do that in a school classroom, too. And um, when we do that, we show how much we've learned about challenging kids, why they're challenging, what doesn't work, what often makes things worse, how they ought to be treated. And then we're passing that knowledge on to the next generation. And so it goes. And that is a wonderful thing. 
kids often deal with fair does not mean equal better than adult. Let's teach our children well. If you've got a challenging kid in your household, I promise we'll be back in September with more information, more support, more questions being answered. I hope you have a great summer. I look forward to being back with you again in September. I hope it's a good summer. I will be answering email throughout the summer. I'm not disappearing off the face of the earth. If you have a question about something that comes up during the summer, use the contact form on the Lives in the Balance website. Don't be a stranger. Happy to hear from you. If you don't hear back quickly, it's just because the inbox is way too full. But that's what Lives in the Balance is for, and that's what Lives in the Balance will always be for. Have a great summer. Talk to you. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.